1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 54, and we'll finish the chapter. It says this, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that was written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is God's word. May he be glorified in the reading and now in the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We, we treasure it. And Father, we, we ask that as we study it now, that you would work in our hearts, that you would stir, up, stir us up to good works, that you would stir us up in our affection for you above all things. Lord, that, that your, your, um, your glory, your renown would be the desire of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Um, on October 24th, 2011, I took my first ride in a commercial prop plane from Detroit to Toronto. Um, I even planned that as we were landing at YYZ, which is the short code for that airport, that I planned to be listening to the band Rush playing their song YYZ. I had it all planned out. I was ready to go. And the moment we took off and the, and the, the wheels lifted off the runway and we hit that first batch of turbulence in a prop plane, I knew that all my plans were about to go out the window. I re only remember two things about that flight. One, uh, every one of us on that plane was thinking, there's a good chance I'm going to die on this flight. Uh, and, the, and the Lord graciously used that and an open door in conversation for me to be able to share the gospel with the lady in the seat next to me because we were all terrified. So what better time to talk about, about mortality and the gospel? So second thing that I remember about that trip was that the, was that the pilot landed the plane. Can I get an amen? Friends, strangely enough, I have two goals tonight. Uh, we want to we talk about the gospel. We want to apply the gospel to the problem of death. And secondly, as we finish off this series, I intend to land the plane. All right? So if I could give you my whole message tonight in a statement or so, it would be this. It's that Christ gives his people absolute victory over death. And his victory must produce his work in his people. If I could say that again, Christ gives his people absolute victory over death. And his victory must produce his work in his people. You know, last week, as we were thinking about just the context, where are we coming from as we come to verses 54, 55, and following? Last week, Pastor Cody was teaching us about verse 54, where Paul quoted Isaiah, Isaiah 25, verse 8 where he says, he, meaning the Lord of hosts, will swallow up death forever. He, the Lord of hosts, will swallow up death forever. Isaiah was talking about God completing his promised redemption of his people. 
And Paul uses that to say that when Christ returns and our corruptible bodies will be clothed in incorruption, that Isaiah's prophecy will be fulfilled and that God will completely undo death forever. And he strengthens that argument here in verse 55. So first, I want you to see Christ gives his people absolute victory over death. Christ gives his people absolute victory over death. We see that in verses 55 through 57. Verse 55 says this, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? In that, Paul is actually quoting from somewhere else in the Old Testament, this time from Hosea. Hosea 13, 14. The New King James translates it this way. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. That's Hosea 13, 14. I think the NASB has a a little bit more consistent of a translation here. I want to share it with you. It says this. Instead, it flips flips it more as a question. Um, And this is where it's good to look at how the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. Amen? Scripture is the best commentary on scripture. And so even you see that here in in the phrasing, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Again, that's Hosea 13, 14. You know, Sheol and Hades are are really, one's a, a Hebrew word and one's a Greek word, but they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about death. God has provided in this passage, God is recounting how he had provided Israel with everything they needed. They brought them out of a land of slavery. Uh, he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, everything they needed, right? He says, you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be harvesting crops that you didn't sow, right? And he's going to be doing all these things for them. And, and Israel loved it. And in their loving it, they became satisfied. And in their becoming satisfied, they forgot the Lord. They forgot the very one that had delivered them. They had forgotten the very one that had, that had provided for them all these things. Remember in, in Hosea, Hosea's marriage to unfaithful Gomer is a picture. This whole marriage relationship that is dysfunctional, it is intended by God to be a picture of God's covenant marriage to unfaithful Israel. And friends, we've been grafted in, haven't we? We are, we are part of that picture. And so when he's talking about Israel, he's not just talking about some geopolitical nation somewhere far away. He's talking about us. Israel's name literally means to strive with God. Sounds about right, right? So they had forgotten God and what they deserved for it. All around this quote here that that Paul has made, all around it is, is promise of destruction for those who are not trusting in God. But God has promised that death has no sting, no bite for those that would trust in him. How? How has Christ given his people victory over death? Well, Paul explains that here in our passage in starting in verse 56. So if, if, we're, if you're taking notes tonight, I would say 1A would be this, the sting of death is sin. Now, if, if I'm moving fast enough and you're thinking, okay, what did he say? Just look in the text. <laughs> it's right there. The sting of death is sin. Sin, uh, sin is the stinger that makes death dangerous. 
Without sin, there would be no death. Think about it back in the garden. The moment, from the moment Adam and Eve sinfully ate the fruit of God's forbidden tree, they separated themselves from their creator, from the one who had given them life. They became spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And sin entered the world through one man and through, uh, and through sin came death. And so sin, uh, sorry, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And death spread to all men because all men sinned. That's right. That's Romans 5.12. So mankind now exists in this, um, from conception, in this state of spiritual death that eventually brings physical death and eternal death under God's wrath and hell. So there's part of, of Paul's explanation, right? We have uh, the sting of death is sin. Sin is what makes death deadly. But now we can see the second part of it in, verse, in the second part of uh, verse 56. B, the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. Wait, hold up. So how does sin get its strength from the law does that mean that the law is sinful that the law is wrong that the law is is something wrong with the law paul i'm so glad you asked that question man i love that audience participation is on fire tonight so i'm so glad so let's look at romans 7 verse 7 romans chapter 7 verse 7 we're going to look through this passage just for a second i love the way that paul puts this he even he even gives our question back to us he says what shall we say then is the law sin hey Looky there. Certainly not, he says. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would, have known, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Again, there's no sin right? Or if there's no sin, there's no death. If there's no law, there's no sin, okay? Look at verse 10 now. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. That's Romans 7, verses 10 through 11. So what we see here is that God's law is holy, righteous, and good, not because it's some external standard that God happened upon and said, hey, this is a good tool. I'll use that to judge people by. No. Instead, it's a reflection of God's very character. It comes from God's own heart. And because God is immutable, he doesn't change. Then neither does his law. That should be so convicting to us and yet so comforting at the same time. We never have to wonder where we stand with our God, right? He doesn't change like shifting shadows. And we see this, the beauty of this is that God has revealed to himself and his character through us, to us through our consciences. We see that in Romans 2, right? We see that also, and we see also that he's revealed himself through his word, the Bible. Now, how does this play out in a real, in a real situation? How do we see this working? Think back to the relationship between the law and sin in the garden, okay? Very simple, Adam and Eve had how many laws? One, right? Don't eat from that tree. Satan, taking opportunity by the commandment, introduced an evil desire into Adam and Eve's hearts and minds. And that 
that desire was to exchange the truth or God's truth for Satan's lie. That eating this fruit would give them the power to usurp God's authority and to be able to discern for themselves what was good and evil. They sought, worship, they sought to worship created things, ultimately themselves, rather than the creator. Thus they deceived and killed themselves with Satan being an accessory, right? And since all of us have inherited Adam's sinful nature, our flesh now, in, as, we, as we see the laws, we know the laws, the law is written upon our hearts, sin takes opportunity from the law and, and conceives of all kinds of, of, of evil desire, right? We know that sin is wrong because the law shows it to us. Our sinful nature takes that and says, oh, okay, I can sin against God in this way. And we would never put it in those words, but we see this pattern in our lives, right? This is happening all the time. And it's because we are sinful people. So the sting of death is sin because sin is rebellion against God, creating a, a separation between you and your creator which brings death. And the strength of sin is the law in that sin takes advantage of the law, which reflects God's character, to produce all manner of sinful desires in your heart, enticing us to sin. So then, how could death have no sting, even for someone who's a believer? And so I want you to look at verse 57, and we're gonna talk about Christ is the victor and the giver. That's C, one C, if you're keeping score here. Verse 57, it says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, that's what verse 57 says. Let's take a, side, a step aside from that for a second and let's talk about bees. Bees. Let's talk about bees, right? You'll see where I'm going in a second. So did you know that worker bees sting light bulb, right? Nobody knew that in this room. No, of course, we all know that. We're painfully aware of this, right? Did you know that if a victim of a, of a worker honeybee has thin enough skin, like somebody that's not a mammal, right? Let's smaller, other kinds of animals. If they have thinner skin, that a, that a worker honeybee could sting and sting and sting and sting repeatedly without end, if needed. However, you, if, if that worker honeybee attacks something bigger with thicker skin, say a mammal, a human being, it's a different game. That stinger from that worker honeybee is broken off along with part of its abdomen and its, its digestive tract. So in, in choosing to attack something like a human being, let's say, Within, moment, within a moment, this bee is left weaponless, defenseless, and its doom is sure within just a few minutes. So basically, if you get stung by a worker honeybee, it is sure to die within a few minutes of the attack. Church family, death has no sting for the believer because Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the law's demands, 
right? This is the power of sin, the law. Jesus didn't come to throw out the law. What did he come to do? Fulfill it. And he did. He did it perfectly, church. And then, to make it even better, he took death's sting for us, bearing our sins in his own body as he hung on the tree, Peter tells us. And when he did, church, he left death, a weaponless and doomed enemy. Paul tells us here in this passage that Jesus gives, us vic- gives victory to his people as a gift, right? Praise be to God who gives us the victory against what? Against death, right? That's the context here. So then we, having died to sin by trusting in Jesus, get to live with Christ for righteousness, 1 Peter 2.24 like, like, Second Peter, or like Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. Remember our context here at the end of chapter 15, Paul is filling in our understanding of Christ's return. As Jesus returns on that day when redemptive history ends, death will be swallowed up in victory, a picture of absolute defeat. And God, both victor and the ultimate author of all scripture, here we see is anticipating this moment. He who declares the end from the beginning and he is mocking death for the defeated foe, the doomed foe that it is. It's as if he's saying, hey, death, where's your sting, buddy? Oh, that's right, it's in Christ. Death, where's your victory? It's been won away from you by Christ. And it's like the commentator R.C.H. Linsky put Death is not merely destroyed so that it cannot do any further harm while all the harm which it has wrought on God's enemy, on God's children remains. The, the tornado is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked while those that were wrecked still lie in ruin. No, death and all its apparent victories are undone for Christ's children What looks like victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. Amen. So yes, we live in a world that's broken and marred by sin. And unless Jesus returns first, we will continue to face death of not only those around us, but our own death as well. It will continue to disrupt our lives. But we don't face death as those who have no hope. We remember this promise that there's a day coming when Christ, the victor over death, will return. And like J.R.R. Tolkien said, that everything sad is going to come untrue. Because Christ has given his people absolute victory over death. Second, Christ's victory must produce his work in his people. Christ's victory must produce his work in his people. So um, there's a couple of beautiful applications that just jump out of the text here. And so I want to, I want to, I want to hit them as we, as we uh, move forward. First, I want to look back at just a second for at verse 57. Look right there at, at verse 57. You could say a, right? The first part of that. He says, thanks be to God. 
Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for his victory over death. In response to this unspeakable gift, how does scripture direct us that our thanks be unto God who gave it to us in Christ? Of course, we see that this is one of those already, but not yet kind of things. Since Jesus has yet to return, but God speaks of death's defeat as if it's already done. I love it when God does that. I love when he talks about these beautiful things as if they're already done. Because again, he's sovereign and he doesn't change. Therefore, we have no reason to doubt him. But what kind of certainty does that offer us? Now, I know that we've heard the question lately, but it's worth asking again. When was the last time that you thanked God for your salvation? When was the last time in prayer you thanked God that death doesn't hold any sting for you? Mm. Did you know that it's okay to thank him in advance for that? It's okay to, to, and not only okay, but it's encouraged to thank him in advance for the things that he's promised. So first we see, thank God. Now let's look on to verse 58. The first part of verse 58 says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. So we are called then, we are commanded to be steadfast and immovable in something And if you've been tracking with us through this series, you know what that is. It's the title of the series, Resurrection Hope. We are steadfast and immovable in resurrection hope. First, Paul says, therefore, right? What's the question? What's the therefore? Therefore, yep, that's it. Um, He says, therefore, which means that everything that's happening next in verse 58 is building upon everything that Paul's been saying before. So really, all this series is being, is being summed up here and being applied here in the last verse, the last words here of chapter 15. He says, therefore, be steadfast. The word for steadfast means literally to be seated, to be settled and firmly situated. If you're standing, if you're standing up and you have both feet together, which is not a very sturdy, play, sturdy way to stand, right? And somebody were to come and push you, what are you most likely to do? You're going to fall, right? That's what's going to happen. Now, if you were sitting down in a pew like you are right now and somebody tried to come over and push you, are, are you more likely to fall or to not do anything? To brush them off and say, what are you doing? Leave me alone. I'm trying to listen to Pastor Justin, right? That kind of thing, right? You're more likely to do that because you are firmly situated, right? Absolutely. You're far less likely to be pushed around, knocked over when you're settled and steadfast. And the word here, immovable, is the same idea, right? Steadfast, immovable. Even in English, we get like, that it, it seems like there's a progression here. Like he's, he's saying steadfast, immovable. It's like, a, it's like the, a next level word, right? And that's exactly what's happening. There's, it's a, even in the original language, there's an increase in intensity. Same idea, Greater, intis- greater intensity. So brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved by God, what does that mean for you if you have this kind of hope? It means you have an anchor for your soul. And God would not command you to do something that you don't have an anchor for, that you don't have a foundation for. And he's commanding us to be steadfast, 
immovable upon this hope. In fact, um, this is actually one of the indications that Paul gives of, of Christian maturity. A couple, of, a couple of books over in Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Does that sound like some of the stuff that's circulating on social media right now? Does that sound like some of the things that, that we're hearing in conversations? And I, and I have to be honest, even as I talk about some of these things with people, I find myself being less and less able to control my tongue. And I feel my blood pressure going up. And I find myself getting worked up and realizing that I'm talking as if, some, as if I'm somebody that doesn't have any hope. Is it just me that does that? That's encouraging. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, you may be thinking uh, in this, Justin, I'm, I'm trusting in Christ, but it sure seems like I'm getting thrown around a lot. First, praise God that you see you're in that situation. It's, it's by his grace that you see that, right? That your eyes have been opened to see where you are. And, and, and really, it's an opportunity to trust in Christ with your current situation. Second, when you feel the wind and waves knocking you around, whether it's looking at the virus statistics, or even worse, the comments on the virus statistics. I, I think there should be a ban on, on comments. It's just, oh man, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, at least in my own mind, I need to not go there. Um, when you feel like the wind and waves are knocking you around, remind yourself of promises like this one. This, this section is just beautiful. And there are many other verses like it throughout the Bible. It's as if God wants us to be reassured or something. Not in ourselves, but in him. There are verses throughout the Bible that talk about God's unfailing love. How he doesn't change. And how he promises that he will continue this work and complete it in us. And that he will take us home to be with him. That he will save us. That he will make us like him. That he will bring death to an end. All these things, they're everywhere. So are we, are we choosing to treasure it, store them up and treasure them in our hearts? Just because it's on our shelf doesn't mean that it's in our heart, does it? So if the fear of death is something you're struggling with, memorize these verses. Make a plan to work, to internalize these verses and then recall it when the pangs of fear come back. The more we internalize God's word on the topic of eternity or any other topic for that matter, the Lord will conform, will conform our worldview to his. And the more readily we can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we're told to thank God, to be steadfast and immovable in resurrection hope, and then finally, always abound in work for the Lord. The back half of verse 57 says this, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The word abounding literally means to go above and beyond the standard. Interestingly, it's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 7 and 8 to describe the way that God uses the riches of his grace to redeem us and to forgive us of our sins. Do you think that God went sparingly on the riches of his grace in saving us? No. He actually says in his own word that he, abound, he made it abound to us. 
He made it abound to us. So hear me, God is commanding that you and I, as, as we remain steadfast and immovable in resurrection hope, that we are, at the same time, we are immovable yet at action. Because as my pastor put it this morning in Sunday school, we are a people of extremes, right? We think steadfast, immovable, I'm gonna stay right here. That's not what God intends, right? That's an, that's an inward thing, a heart thing. We can be steadfast and immovable, yet moving. Moving in service to our king. In fact, not just abounding, Paul says here, he says always abounding. So always going in above and beyond the standard. But doing so in what? What are we to abound in? He says work. I know, I said the W word in church. I'm sorry about that, by the way. Work. Which is a good thing, y'all. It's, it's, it's pre-Genesis 3, right? God gave Adam work in Genesis 2. It's part of our purpose. It's what moves us forward. And if you don't, if you don't believe that, you get sick for a week or two. And you'll find, you'll find just how beautiful it is to be back at work. There's something about it. We need purpose and direction in our lives. So here he says work. Whose work? The work of the Lord. So another question, what's the work of the Lord, right? Does it just mean we do something spiritual? Well, what did the Lord work on during his earthly ministry? As of first importance, among lots of things, as of first importance, the work that our Lord did and gave to the 12 was this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. This is the chief work. This is the thing that he's called us to do. Yes, there are many things that we can and should be doing in serving the Lord. And whatever we do, we're commanded to do it for the glory of God. But friends, the scriptures are clear. During his time on earth, as Jesus was going, as he was doing the things that he was doing, disciple-making was the Lord's work. And it's the work that he has commanded every single one of us to do. Are you always abounding in this work? Because it is a command of God. And he concludes this verse by undergirding it with knowledge. Work, we have hope, steadfastness and hope, and then work undergirded by knowledge. Look here at the back half of verse 58. He says, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What a beautiful, beautiful idea. Remember the context. What's fueling this work? It's the gospel. That Christ, the second Adam, has died for us and risen according to the scriptures. Therefore, those in Christ have no reason to fear death anymore. The greatest single cause of fear in the world has been taken off the table. Jesus has given us a ministry that not even death can stop. So the question, church family, is what are we waiting for? Countless people around you each day stand on the brink of eternity. And unless something changes... They will go into it without 
an advocate without a savior. Death will still have sting for them. And it will be, it will have absolute victory over them. And God has delivered you from all of that according to the gospel that you now carry. What remains that could prevent you from sharing this good news with them? God has taken away the greatest thing that could ever stop the ministry of the gospel, fear of death. As our plane prepares to land on this series, I want to point out that all of this is directed towards Christians. It says, therefore, my beloved, verse 57, verse 58 says, this is a term used for believers throughout the New Testament, having been adopted by God into his family. So all these promises of resurrection hope are only for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior of their lives. But the beauty of it is that the membership to that group is open to anyone who believes. Anyone who believes, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. And friends, as we embark upon this this death-defying ministry of proclaiming the gospel, would we be encouraged that for anyone that we talk to, anyone that believes, those promises are for them too. For anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, no matter what they've posted on Facebook, it doesn't matter if they hear the gospel and trust in Jesus. These promises are for them too. So two questions. First, friend, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord? I pray that you, even now, right where you are, that you would, rep- you would repent and trust in Jesus, and that he would reconcile you to himself forever, and that you would have this resurrection hope and join us in this death-defying ministry. And secondly, if you know Christ, and you know how good, as, you, as you've heard tonight, I pray the Lord is, is either reigniting or opening your eyes for the first time to the beauty of this, this resurrection hope that we have in Christ, that no matter what happens, that the worst thing that could happen is that we die. And yet, death from the scriptures, it shows us that death is just the gateway to eternity with Christ. And that's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because he loved Jesus. Because Jesus had redeemed him. And that meant that even when he died, that knowing that it being just the gateway of, to being with Christ, that Christ was worth more, more valuable, more supreme than anything that he would lose when he would die. Can we say the same thing? We see from Scripture that it's true. And so what will we do with this resurrection hope that we have? Outside these doors, there are tons of people who are scared. We're, there's probably scared people in here too, and I get that. But there are people outside that are waiting for this gospel, people that, you, that are in your sphere of influence, people that you know, people that you have a doorway for the gospel with. Tell them. Because Christ gives his people absolute victory over death. And his victory must produce his work in his people. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this promise that death has no sting for the believer. Lord, it, our hearts long for that day when Jesus returns. And as we long for you, Father, would you direct us, enable us, empower us, train us to take this gospel to the world, starting with people right outside this door. Father, may it be that the light that shines the farthest shines brightest right here in Callahan, Florida. Lord, we thank you for this series and just reminding us of, of the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, would you, would you sink it down deep into our hearts? Transform us, make us more like Christ. And prepare our hearts for mission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.